Cool. So we're continuing in in our series uh, uh, on Lent. What we've been doing is we've been looking at the time uh, between when Peter uh, had this revelatory moment about Jesus and who he was and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, And that was at Caesarea Philippi in in Jesus' story as he was traveling around preaching and teaching there. And, And Peter had this incredible moment. And at that point, Jesus began to prepare them for his eventual departure. Uh, on the cross, ultimately his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He began to prepare the disciples, so the tone of his ministry shifted at that point, although he still was ministering to the crowds and interacting with them. He was really working to prepare his disciples, and, and that's sort of where we're at. Um, and, and we just get these encounters all the time to just spend time with people on their journey and, and to, to help them connect and all of that. Uh, the coldest night of the year uh, is, you know, obviously a place where you're going to have a conversation with someone from Lagos, Nigeria, uh, in Ottawa. I had this incredible uh, encounter with this, uh, this young uh, lady that was walking uh, with us. I believe she met uh, Diana. I don't know if Diana's here this morning. She met Diana as well. But to some of us, she's probably mid-30s. She's been working in international development for a while, uh, traveling around the world, working in refugee camps and doing all kinds of different things. But uh, as I got talking with her, she got into a really interesting piece of her story that fits in with what we're going to talk about this morning. What she shared with me was that... um, was a bit of her relationship with her parents and a bit of her relationship with her mom. Her mom had passed away a number of years ago and and died of cancer, but uh, the grief that was beyond just the grief of losing her mom was something that happened in her relationship with her Christian community at the time. She was part of of a church that was really, really excited about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, really excited about healings and miracles as we are, uh, really believed that God wanted to do that. Uh, But in that relationship with that church, uh, they had a really an out-of-balance view on the role of faith in all of it. And, and from their perspective, it was a, a denial of faith to receive medical treatment, like maybe some Jehovah's Witnesses communities that we know or, or other you know, really extreme groups within Christianity. So she was prayed for, and they prayed for deliverance, and they prayed for healing, and they did fasting, and they did prayer, and they did uh, a lot of different things to care for her mom, but they refused to allow her to go and receive medical treatment and it was a cancer that was easily treatable and uh, and her mother ultimately died and this this uh, girl that I was visiting with uh, walking down the streets of Ottawa on coldest night of the year was full of grief over this uh, pain that she'd experienced and and full of disillusionment with uh, with her her community uh, wrestling with where is God in all of this does God actually do miracles she kind of believed so um, but does he uh, does he allow us to have medical treatment does does he heal us in in those ways like how does it all work but but ultimately there's a disillusionment with the church and and what uh, what the, the apostles are experiencing is they're uh, uh, interacting with Jesus now in a mode of preparation is Jesus beginning to place some of those big questions for them and what we're going to look at is the miracle of the epileptic boy who was delivered from a demon and set free and we're going to look at what Jesus taught about the role of faith in that context because uh, there's a way that is uh, full of life for us. There's a way that sees the miracle and there's a way that acknowledges the ground on which we walk, the, the challenges of just life in the world. So this 
is where we are in the story. We're coming down from the mountain. You'll remember the transfiguration. They were up there and there was Moses and Elijah and, uh, and Jesus and Moses and Elijah were disappeared. Jesus was left and we left the story where uh, Jesus, uh, where, where the voice of the father said to the disciples, uh, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. They come down the mountain, they arrive back in Caesarea Philippi. Um, where they'd started. So they've been there for about a week and a half now. Um, but in Matthew uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, it says this. Maybe we'll just pray before we read the scriptures. Lord, we love your word. Uh, we love the scriptures. We love what you have to teach us through them. We ask that as we read these words, that, that not only would we engage with them cognitively, not only would we engage with them with our, with our minds, but they would engage our heart. They would be transformative. That we receive whatever work your Holy Spirit wants to do just by the reading of the text. Come, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom as we, as we look at it together. So it says this in Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 6. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so here we are, and we remember the context where Jesus is teaching this. He's teaching it in Caesarea Philippi, a very pagan place, a place where there was uh, the worship of the god Pan and other deities, a, a place that was spiritually very dark. And in the midst of this, uh, Jesus sets free uh, somebody who was demonized, probably uh, through the worship uh, of of uh, false gods through the worship of Pan, through their pagan beliefs. But uh, Jesus comes to this father of this sort of pagan man, this pagan child, and begins uh, to set them free. We're just going to unpack this a little bit. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Uh, that little bit about coming to the crowd, uh, we have a little bit more detail in the book of Mark uh, looking at it. In Mark chapter 9, it says this, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a huge crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. So uh, a lot of these stories that we read in the Gospels, they appear in the other Gospels as well. So we can jump to the other Gospels to get other details that the uh, other apostles sort of fill into the story. So Mark tells us from his perspective that when they came down from the mountain, they arrived and everybody was arguing. Uh, the disciples were arguing with, uh, with uh, the Sadducees the teachers of the law who were there in that space. They were having an argument. It was kind of like a big giant free-for-all. They were, they were frustrated with one another. Jesus had been up the mountain, he'd been praying, and everything had sort of gone to pot. They were having uh, a frustrating time. And Jesus comes down to them, comes to that place of, of argument. He comes to the crowd. It says, as soon as all of the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. They were overwhelmed with wonder and, and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. 
So first, just imagine what this picture looked like. Uh, the, the teachers of the law are there. They're arguing theology. They're arguing, who is this person, Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Uh, can he do anything? Can he not do anything? Are his miracles real? Is Jesus demonized? We see all of these kinds of different arguments swirling around the life of Jesus. And, and Jesus is out of the picture now, and the disciples are trying to hold this argument together. They love Jesus. They believe in him, but, but he's under attack from these teachers of the law. So, so they're wrestling with them. And Jesus comes into the, the mix, comes down the hill, and, and the people, like not just the disciples and the, and the teachers of the law who are having the argument, but all the people who are watching this argument are like, I'm done with this argument. I'm out of here. There's Jesus. And they go running to him. And they go running to him. It's so often in life we're caught up in earthly arguments. So often we're caught up in, in uh, over-intellectual arguments. So often we're caught up in politics. So often we're caught up in, in so many different things. But what we really want to be is the person who can turn their back on the argument and run to Jesus in wonder. That's just my first serious observation from the the text. Who do you want to be in the picture? When you're looking at all of these uh, things, uh, when you're looking at these stories in in the text, you always want to say, who who am I in this picture? Am I like one of the teachers of the law arguing with Jesus' disciples? Or am I uh, one of the disciples like arguing with Jesus? And I just looked at this text and said, I just want to be one of the people who ditched the argument and run to him. I just want to be someone who runs to Jesus in wonder. And we just imagine, like, remember he was up on the mountain, he was praying, and as he prayed, his face began to glow, and his clothes began to shine, and I just imagine that there was still probably a little bit of that sense of glory on him. And so they came and they ran to Jesus, and that's where we need to be in the marketplace of arguments. First and foremost is people running to Jesus. So it says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. Lord, have mercy on my son. That's the other person we want to be in the story. We want to be the person who uh, comes to a place kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Lord, have mercy on my son. And the man begins to cry out. And we realize uh, later, just in a few moments, that Jesus asks, you know, he asked what they were arguing about. And what they were really arguing about was why uh, Jesus' power wasn't working, why this person was sick. If Jesus' disciples meant anything, why was this person's son uh, still sick? Why weren't the disciples able to walk in Jesus' power? That was the heart of the argument. But this man is like, okay, this is just too confusing for me. I feel this pain of my son. I feel this frustration that he's in. And, I, and I've just got to break through the confusion and I've got to go to the source. So he goes to Jesus, he goes to the source, and that's, that's where we need to be. So he just begins to explain it to, to Jesus. He says he has seizures, and he's, he's suffering greatly. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Just to go back a tiny step, that phrase uh, that we had, uh, Jesus, have mercy 
on my son. That mercy is an appeal to a covenant. It's, it's not just like have pity, like from your holy high place, uh, reach down and drop me a crumb, Jesus. It's, it's an appeal to covenant relationship. This man has invested in Jesus, in his understanding of Jesus to the level where he and even calls him Lord, right? We see that in that use of the word Lord, where this man is claiming some special relationship with Jesus. And so in the context of that covenant relationship with Jesus that he's beginning to understand, he's a follower of Jesus. Uh, uh, it says he has, my son has seizures and he's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and the, or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. There are more details in, in Mark chapter 9. Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. It just may be worth taking a little bit of time on a on a side note. Uh, you know, uh, deliverance ministry was a normative part of the deal for Jesus, and I would propose that it should probably be a slightly more normative part of the deal for us. Uh, Jesus, you know, uh, looking looking at the story uh, of Simon's mother-in-law. Uh, suffering from a high fever and asking Jesus to help her, uh, he goes over and, and rebukes the fever and left it, and the fever left her. Like, how, how often do we rebuke sickness? I usually go get a Tylenol. Right? There's a way in which Jesus was able to see uh, spiritually what was going on behind the scenes. I think that's something just to challenge us to walk in. You know, I told the story of this girl from uh, Lagos, Nigeria. You know, her faith community was on this opposite extreme where everything was spiritual and, and medical treatment uh, wasn't an important part of the peace for them. Uh, we, I think, for the most part, are sometimes way over here in the spectrum, right, where uh, medical treatment is what we're all about, but we don't acknowledge often the spiritual battle that we're fighting, right, that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. And so Jesus has this way of saying, hey, in this particular case, what we're dealing with here is, is something demonic. And so when we deal with something demonic, we're going, to, we're going to tackle it. We're going to dig into it. We're going to wrestle with it. I would just propose that for us that sometimes things are, are demonic. We, have, we, have a, you know, we think that maybe the demons are all over in Africa. And maybe a few of them took ship and came over here to, to North America at some point. They couldn't really get through customs because we're so rational here. Uh, and they, they didn't have their passports in order. Um, so we're pretty clean from, from spiritual uh, powers here in Canada. That's not something we really struggle with. When we have addictions, it's purely medical all the time. And, uh, you know, it's not true, is it? Uh, in our culture, uh, the enemy wears a, a disguise and is disguised behind our, our rationalism. But sometimes uh, there's, there's really a spirit at the heart of it that we need to learn to deal with. We need to learn as Christians to take authority of it. Uh, Jesus was really good at cutting uh, through all of that. Um, these, I mean, just to give you just the massive stories, we're not going to go through them, but these are all stories of deliverance. Mary Magdalene, uh, this famous character who was with Jesus and went to the tomb when his tomb was opened and wor wanted to worship him, one of the first people he, uh, he encountered, had seven demons cast out of her. Um, and, and just the story go on and on. If we look at that one little 
uh, bit at the beginning of Mark, various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics and paralytics, he healed them all. Like Jesus, Jesus healed all of those people. And, and, and hey, by the way, some of them were demoniacs and we just healed them too. It was just part of the deal, right? It was part of the deal for them. Uh, and we see that. I think that's something that we need to just, I mean, it's sort of just a big rabbit trail we're chasing, but this is a, a really important piece for us, I think, as a community. Uh, Jesus said this to us. He said, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, in the works that I do, will also do them. He, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And then in John chapter 20, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You know, as the Father has sent Jesus to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to uh, recover sight for the blind, to preach the gospel, that's probably the same way he sent you. Right? And, and we see this. We see uh, all kinds of situations where we're encountering uh, spirits that need to be confronted. One of the most common times that I, as a pastor, encounter people who are wrestling and struggling with the demonic is in particular with new believers and in particular with teenagers. Uh, time and time again, I'll hear the story of a young teen who's recently given their life to Jesus, and they come uh, into their room at night, and they're, and they're tormented in their room at night. When they, when they uh, close the, the door at night, when they turn off the lights, and we try to go to sleep, they'll describe situations like, I feel like there was something standing on the end of my bed glaring at me. Some people will describe uh, seeing yellow eyes looking at them. Some people will describe a fear that something is in their closet. Uh, they'll say that, that I'll try to pray, I'll try to, to worship Jesus, but I feel like my mind is just turned into jello and I can't do it. And, and it's so common for, for a new believer to have these encounters where they have to wrestle through and find their authority in Christ to push back uh, evil spirits that are trying to oppress them, that are trying to discourage them, that are trying to uh, cause them grief and pain and to steer them away from Jesus. And it's just a part of the deal. And it's been a part of the deal since Jesus' time, and it's a part of deal in my time. And time and time again, I've, I've walked young people through, how do you take up your authority in Christ and in the name of Jesus say that your room is to be a sanctuary? Your room is to be a clean place. Your room is to be a place where the Holy Spirit dwells and not a place where the enemy dwells. It's meant to be a place for you and Jesus to have fellowship with one another. And any dark thing that's in that space is meant to be cast out and you have authority to do it. And some of you know people like that in your lives, and some of you have experienced that in your lives, and some of you might be experiencing that now, where you have a sense of oppression that's over your life and you don't know how to deal with it, a sense of a compulsion to behave in a certain way, and you don't know how to make that behavior stop. Well, very often there's a deliverance situation there. In some cases, you need to take up authority in your own life to push back the darkness in Jesus' name, and in some cases, uh, you need to uh, get a friend to help you but don't tolerate the darkness tormenting you because Jesus has authority and he's given you authority to be free so just just to say that really clearly just a, just another tiny side note you know Jesus doesn't seem to do deliverance by remote control or by distance he 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 gets in the face of a person or a situation that's like that and, and, he, and he prays out loud do you, just a tiny little note do you know what I want to know why Jesus sort of seems to deal with these things out loud because demons aren't omniscient, 
They can't see everything. They can't hear everything. They can't hear your thoughts. So if you're struggling with that, just, just speak out loud the power and the name of Jesus. And let there be freedom in your life. And again, I could probably take more time to make a bigger case about this, but this was just a normal part of life and ministry, and it's been a normal part of the church for thousands of years. And we need to learn to just take up, take up authority. You know, how does Jesus want to send out his church? In Matthew 10, uh, it says, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. That's, that's how he sent out his disciples. And, and so Jesus gives us that authority as he sends us out to do all of that stuff. And so often when we're young and we're wondering what Jesus wants to do with our lives, we're asking Jesus questions. Jesus, should I just be uh, a missionary or should, should, I, should I be a pastor? What should I, what should I do, Lord? And, and he would say, I don't care, but when you go, uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, uh, cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. Should I marry this person or that person? I don't care, but when you go, cast out demons, heal the sick, cleanse the, the lepers, preach the gospel. Right? It's while you're going that this is just a part of our lives as Christians. This isn't uh, something that's, that's for the high and holy. This isn't for people in vocational ministry. This isn't something just for the pastor. As believers, you have authority in Christ to push back the darkness wherever you go. That's the, that's the sending that you've received from Jesus. That's how he sent you out. As he has come, so too you should go. So that's the deal. So, but, but that's, in our experience, it's not always easy. And it's just like the disciples in that, in that passage that we've been looking at in Matthew. Uh, the, this uh, man says, I brought him to the disciples, but uh, they could not heal him. Uh, that word they could not was a dunamai. It's the same word for the power of the Holy Spirit that we see elsewhere in the scriptures. The, they didn't have the power. They didn't have the strength. They didn't have the ability to do it. And that's just, isn't that just where we live a lot of the time? We just feel like we haven't got the power to do it. Uh, we, it feels really, really real to us when we're thinking of our friends in the hospital who are sick. Right? When we're thinking of the people that we love who are, who are ill, when we think of people that we have prayed for time and time again with chronic illnesses, and we haven't had authority to make a difference, we haven't had a power, that sense of powerlessness is something that we feel. But Jesus in this passage begins to speak into it. Right, The disciples uh, have come to him, and this man has come to him and said, this, this stuff that you've done with everybody else, your disciples can't do it. Like, like my son needs to be fixed. And you hear the grief and pain in this, in this man's life. And Jesus responds in a very compassionate and loving and gentle way, he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. <laughs> you replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And we see that, that you know, Jesus being who he is, he's fully God and fully man. He lacks just a little bit of divine frustration come out of him there, doesn't he? With this sense that we live in this time between times, this time between the fullness of the kingdom of God and, the, and, uh, and this sort of messy 
time that we're living in while the kingdom is still unfolding. And he says this, you unbelieving generation. And we often think that he's saying, remember this generation, now he's talking to the whole crowd. Uh, we often think you, you unbelieving generation, we think he's like, you guys don't have enough faith. You don't have enough belief. It, it, that's not what he's saying in this case. That's not what he's saying to the generation. To the generation, that word he's using is apistos, which, which means unfaithful. It's where we get the word apostate. You apostate generation. He's talking to the Jewish teachers of the law, and he's talking to the people who are worshiping uh, the idols, and he's saying, you're apostate. You're, you're completely separate from me. Your belief is turned around backwards. Your faith is in other things and perverse. He furthers that thought. It means thoroughly turned backwards. That first dies at the beginning of that Greek word is thoroughly, and tramene means turned backwards. You're thoroughly bent. You're thoroughly turned backwards. And we live in a generation that's thoroughly turned backwards from faith in God. Thoroughly turned backwards. And Jesus is, is expresses some holy frustration with the climate in which he lives. It just comes out of him. There's another direction you could go. And this fits with his message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Turn and go another way. Think again. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's his message to the culture when we cry out to him and we say, my child isn't being healed. Uh, my life is broken. I'm so mad that all this stuff is going sideways in my life. He says to us, well, there's some repentance that's involved. You have to turn to Jesus. You have to turn to me. And so he rebuked the demon then in front of them. He just expressed the frustration and he rebuked the demon. It says, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. And I just wanted to bring attention to the meaning of that word rebuke. That word rebuke is to rightly assign value to. To rightly assign value to. So Jesus rightly assigns the demon his value. <laughs> he tells it what it's worth. He tells it what it is. He rebukes it. He puts it in its place. That's the authority that Jesus has. And that's the authority that we learn to have as believers. We learn that the size and the value and the voice and the power of a spirit that might be oppressing us or holding us in bondage is absolutely tiny next to the vast power and glory and beauty and authority of Jesus. Amen. He is a big, big God. And we have a little bitty devil. The, the big risk for us in deliverance ministry is an over-glorification of the enemy. I've seen it time and time again. I remember I was uh, in a deliverance session with, uh, in a church in Ottawa in the middle of renewal, and we were uh, praying for this guy, and, and they were trying to get him delivered. He'd been at the back of the meeting. He'd been cursing Jesus and swearing and shouting, and we just knew he was demonized. We took him out to a back room, and, and these, these sort of religious guys were trying to deliver him, and they were talking to the demon and asking him questions and wanting to know everything about him. And, uh, and, 
and try to do this kind of weird uh, deliverance thing. They went, okay, that's not working. Uh, this guy is not, this demon's not going out of this guy. Let's get some holy water. And they went and got some holy water from the closet because everybody keeps holy water in their closet. I don't know. But they just happen to have some holy water in the closet. And they go to, to anoint this guy with holy water and the demonized guy with crazy eyes and frothing lips grabs the holy water and drinks it. I'll drink your holy water. <laughs> The demon doesn't respond uh, to us giving it attention or glorifying it or having conversation with it. A demon needs to be rebuked. You assign it its value of nothing in the face of the glory of the living God. It doesn't have to be a shouting match. It just has to be walking in the authority of Jesus. So the disciples now, we heard what Jesus said to the crowd, right? The disciples now come to him privately and ask, uh, why couldn't we drive it out? And to them, he says, it's because you have so little faith. See, he knows that their hearts aren't bent backwards. Their hearts are turned towards him. They're oriented towards him, but, but for some reason they weren't able to walk in his authority. And that's the place where most of us are. Uh, to them, he says, you have so little faith. Your faith is just, is just small. And that, what that means is numerically small. And that word is actually tied to that word rebuke, that assigning of value, assigning a numerical value to the d- demon. And he's saying, now assign big value to your relationship with me. He's using uh, quantification in both those cases. The demon's place is a low number. My authority is a big number. Right? And for here, this, this definition of faith is so important for us. Because we, we think of, of this, this faith, we think of having faith, we think it's some kind of ethereal, uh, liquid, spiritual thing that just flows out in the atmosphere and it's, it's like the force and if we could just somehow gather up enough of it and stuff it in our hearts and get the right amount and get our faith cup filled up that we will somehow feel confident about the power that we have to accomplish the thing that we are about to try. And faith is not about us finding the power that we have to do anything. It's not about some ethereal thing that's floating out there, some intangible thing. Faith is a relationship with someone or something that's based on trust and experience. You have little relationship with me. You have a little understanding of who I am. You have a little grasp of, of my authority and my power. That's your problem. Not that you need to go out over here and over here and over here and, and grab something from the faith tree and stuff it in your heart and fill it up to a certain amount and then you can do the things God's called you to do. Right, let me, let me illustrate it like this. How does a 200-pound police officer stop an 80,000-pound truck? Does that police officer have the power to stop the truck? Does he have the strength? Does he have the mass? Does he have shoes that are super glued to the ground? He, he, he doesn't have that, right? He doesn't have authority or power to do that, but he has authority. 
He steps out his hand in front of an 80,000-pound truck and goes like that, and the driver puts the brakes on, not because he might get a scratch on his truck from the policeman if he runs him down. He stops because he knows that if he doesn't stop, the SWAT team comes, and the other police cars come, and the helicopter comes, and he's ultimately, by the power of the state, by the power of the whole of the police force, he's thrown in prison. And he's done. He's finished. And the policeman knows that. And that's what we are as Christians. We're people who, who have authority, but it's not an authority that's based on our own power. We, we, we don't have power, but it's based on the power and strength and might of Jesus. That's the authority we have. So imagine, I've, said, I've used this illustration before, imagine the little kid in the schoolyard with a, with a big 200-pound bully ready to knock him out. And this little kid is standing behind the bully like this. He's about this tall and he feels really small. And all of a sudden the bully just bolts and takes off. And the little kid's like, I didn't know I was so strong. I didn't know that could intimidate that guy. And the, and the little kid looks behind him, and there's his two older brothers. That's what our life is like. We're like the kid in the schoolyard with an older brother who is strong and mighty and massive. That's how a policeman uh, stops a truck, and that's how faith works as a relationship with someone in whom we trust with Jesus. It's his authority and his power. It's not ours. Uh, he says this, truly I tell you, if you have faith, uh, which remember our definition of faith is relationship with Jesus, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Just see that picture of a mustard seed, that tiny little seed on a person's finger. It's just a tiny, tiny little seed. Well, what are the characteristics of a mustard seed? It doesn't actually say in that text, uh, if you pull it apart in the Greek, it doesn't say if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. That's actually a mistranslation that as small as a mustard seed actually doesn't appear in the text. That phrase, as small as. In the actual Greek text, it says this, if you have faith as a mustard seed, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So what are the characteristics of a mustard seed? What is faith like a mustard seed? Well, a mustard seed is light. It can be blown almost anywhere and take root in almost any soil. That's Christ-like faith. It's virtually indestructible. The tensile strength of a mustard seed, you can stomp on it, you can drive over it, you can drive a tank over it, and it's so small and round and hard that, that none of those things will actually crush it. It's like, a, it's like the strength of a rock. And, and, and it's an organic thing. It's a teeny tiny little thing, but when it's planted in the ground and watered, uh, a, a great tree will grow. Well, mustard seed trees are actually bushes, but uh, a great bush will grow. <laughs> and that's what our faith is meant to be. It, it feels so small. We feel so small. We feel like the challenges that we have in life are insurmountable. But if we have faith that can't be destroyed, if we have faith that doesn't give up, and we have faith that uh, patiently grows 
through life and expands over time and multiplies exponentially, the mountains that you face in life can be moved. That's how that works. And we have this one additional detail from Mark chapter 9 that, that, that sheds light on our text. It says this, uh, Jesus says this at the end. He says, this kind, he's talking about the demon now. This kind only comes out by much prayer and fasting. You know, I've heard this uh, taught so many times that uh, if you're having trouble dealing with a deliverance situation or you're having trouble dealing with an illness, that you need to fast and you need to pray uh, harder to get that to happen. And, and so often I think that's just religion speaking through. We kind of imagine that uh, if we pray hard enough, if we fast hard enough, if we're hungry for long enough, we'll finally build up enough credit with God that we'll be able to do that thing that we want to do. Is that how any part of Christianity works at all? None of it works that way. Right? Uh, faith, uh, that prayer thing, isn't something that we do to build up our own confidence in our own power to do the thing that God's called us to do. That's not what prayer and fasting does for us. What prayer and fasting does for us is links us back to him. Prayer and fasting is a relational thing. It's the continuation of the same teaching. That it's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. It's all about how connected we are to him. It's all about how connected we are to his authority. Not our own strength. Not our own authority. So you have a mountain in your life. Uh, you don't pray and fast to earn your cred with God. You pray and fast to get to know Jesus. That, that time of prayer and fasting is what the police officer has when he has his briefing from his sergeant and in the room with all the other cops in the morning where he gets a realization of the team that he's a part of, where he gets a realization of the organization that he's a part of, where he gets a sense of the resources that are there. And every morning that police officer has that meeting in that squad room uh, to hear his assignment for the day uh, to see what his buddies are doing, to get the news from the whole force. That's what prayer and fasting does for us, is it connects us to the authority that's behind us. It's not a religious thing. Let's stand up. Lord, in the spectrum of things... Uh, all of the things that we face as challenges, we know that we need counseling and we know that we need doctors and we know that we need uh, medical treatment and we know that we need a Tylenol from, from time to time and, and we have fairly good faith in that stuff, but Lord, we just confess that our faith uh, in you, our sense of relational connectedness to you is not what maybe it could be. Would you connect us with you in a, a way that gives us a sense, uh, not just of a connection with you as a historical person, but a connection with the authority of the risen God who sits at the right hand of the Father. Yes. Enthroned in glory, surrounded by angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
That's the authority with which we're connected. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would impart a sense of the reality of that to my brothers and sisters and to me this morning. That we have been given, as we discussed uh, several weeks ago, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. To unlock heaven and see that your will be done here on earth as it is done there. Let your kingdom authority flow through us in confidence. Not our authority, not our confidence, not our courage. Uh, That's all so small. But your authority breathed into us. Just as you breathed into your disciples when you poured out your Holy Spirit. For anyone here who's wrestling with darkness in their home, with darkness in their room, with darkness in their minds, with darkness in sin patterns, would you cause them to rise up with a sense of your authority and be set free? Speak in the hearing of any uh, evil spirit that's in this place, and I say in the name of Jesus, your days are numbered. The king of glory is enthroned on high. Be bound in the name of Jesus. Let your church rise up, O God. Let your church rise up and take its place. Let any who are oppressed see light at the end of the tunnel and see your glory poured out for them. Because you are a good, good God and you love them. You love us. We receive your love. We receive your authority. In Jesus' name, amen.